0: If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee, I'm Doc Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do.
1: We build an environment where we know how to motivate kids. They're learning math in the process, but how the game actually plays out depends on the kids and the community and how they react to it and what they do and what they invent and all of that.
0: Since 1999, students ages eight and up have had a unique opportunity to learn STEM skills by interacting as citizens of Wyville. Wyville is the largest and oldest virtual community for kids on the Internet. Young participants learn to apply practical skills as they engage in activities including design, running their own small business, and writing for Wyville's newspaper. And parents, teachers, and grandparents can be a part of what's happening in Wyville, which offers regular virtual events and more than 100 games and activities. Often, the young Wyvillians don't realize just how much they're learning. Dr. James Bauer is both a neuroscientist and the CEO and chairman of the board of Newmedian Incorporated a Pasadena-based educational software company which originated and manages Wyville. Jim, as he prefers to be called, is also executive director of the Pacific Division of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. Jim, before we get to looking at Wyville, I'm going to start with a question that you say you really like. I'm going to have a why for you, which is why did you become a neurobiologist who's also an educational innovator? What was the inspiration for you?
1: Well, I became an educational innovator before I became a neurobiologist, actually. So, I started working on issues involving education, actually, when I was 15, and set up an organization in New York State of high school students when I was 16, ran a statewide convention of high school students to talk about what needed, this was, by the way, in 19. that was a long time ago, to think and talk about ways in which the educational system could be improved. And as a consequence of that, the things that we did, the state of New York to adopt one of the first, I think it was the first, California claims they were first, but I don't think so. Anyway, the first student Bill of Rights and responsibilities for high school students. The other thing that we were actively involved in was getting students on school boards. So we got the New York State School Board Association to agree that every school board in the state should have a student representative. So I was involved a long time ago in education, education systems, education reforms. Like I said, when I was in high school, And then when I was in college, I actually taught elementary school. I was in a work-study program. I taught elementary school in high school as part of my college. And then it turns out that I got very interested in animal behavior in college because there was a spectacular professor. And from animal behavior, I became interested in brains, which obviously control animal behavior. And so I ended up getting interested in neuroscience, and eventually, through a long, strange route, which you probably don't want me to go through, but anyway, I ended up being a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin in neurophysiology, and then became pretty convinced early on that in order to really understand brains, we had to have a theoretical underpinning for neuroscience, so I became involved. And building platforms and systems to build models of brains and computers. This was in, what, 1980? And then I was hired in 1983 at Caltech as a faculty member to help build what became the first computational biology graduate program. That is a graduate program that was focused on how you build models of biological systems, and in particular, the nervous system. And, given my long-standing interest and in involvement in education, way predating my interest in the brain, I decided at the same time to start exploring, this was 1983, starting to explore how you use computers, computer networks, and especially modeling and simulation technology to educate people, and especially kids. So, at Caltech, I launched a program in the Pasadena Public Schools in California initially, but then we ended up with a lot of funding from NSF and other sources spreading it throughout the state to actually bring very high-quality, hands-on science learning into the schools, K-6. And as a small piece of that, we explored how to use computers and computer technology and simulation and games to supplement and engage and measure, actually, educational outcomes. And then in 1999, I decided to move all of that out of Caltech into a company. And in 1999, we launched Wyville.net, which was the first virtual world, first game-based learning world, first simulation learning-based world on the Internet. And now, 21 years later, it was really launched as a research and development site to continue to figure out how you use this technology to educate people. And now 21 years later, with about 8.7 million users and, you know, average age 13, 78% female, and with COVID-19 in particular, you know, the schools are, are turning strongly to how do you do things online with kids at home. And we've been waiting for them for 30 years, 35 years.
0: What an incredible world Wyville is. I have been trying to go online and look it over and there's no way we can do any kind of justice to it in a short description, but what if you had to take somebody through their first tour, imaginary tour of Wyville? What are two or three things you'd tell them do not miss?
1: Oh boy, well the first thing I'd tell them is find a Wyvillian in Wyville and they're very happy to be friendly, especially adults actually, and they will show you around. So what you should not miss is connecting to a Wyvillian and, and having them show you what's going on. You're right. It's a very large space. We've been adding to it for 21 years with support from 150 different organizations, one time or another. Very broad range. You know, NASA, you know, National Science Foundation, Toyota, the Field Museum, the MacArthur Foundation. So we've been adding and adding and adding to Wyville. and so. It is a big place, which is actually, you know, we think is a good thing. It also means, however, that newbies, as they're called, as you know, you know, sometimes get a little overwhelmed. But the Y helpers, the kids in Yville that basically help out newbies, are very happy to show you around. I think the thing that, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that I think, and this is, you know, sort of self serving because. Myself and Jen Son and Mark Dynan are the three people that built it, basically. So, you know, there are things that I think are important there. One big one is the extent early on that we thought that, you know, there should be a real opportunity for users to generate content and to represent themselves in YBIL. So. One of the first things that you will do when you come to Wyville is make an avatar. And that turns out to get complicated and interesting because the avatar parts, the so-called base parts, which you use and pick your nose, which is the part of Wyville where you pick your avatar, are made by kids, not by us. And so there's a huge enterprise in Wyville where designers, as they call themselves, design face parts, which they then sell to other users for clams, which is the internal non-monetizable commodity in Wyville. And so, you know, we have now designers that have been in Wyville for 15 years. We actually have kids who came into Wyville at age 12. We are really interested in designing face parts and and shirts and accessories and all that who now are professionally doing that in the real world but continue to come into Wyville to put in new designs. So you'll make an initial design but then you go to some place where newbies hang out like South Beach for example and someone will likely come to you and say do you want a makeover? So we have makeover studios and which is another level of Design, these are kids that don't make these parts as much as they actually help you put together a look. So there's a whole fashion component in Yville that's sort of fun to interact with. And one thing we know about that that's quite interesting is that the accessories and the pieces and parts that kids make for other avatars directly reflect the real world. So, for example, three months ago, all of a sudden, there were a ton of face mask designs that kids started making to sell to other kids for clams. Or in some cases, the kids just said, they're free. You need a face mask. I made it. You can go get it for free. So one of the things we've been, you know, we knew, we thought when we started this many years ago that the fact that Wyville is kind of like the real world meant that there would be interesting opportunities for kids to cross over between real world and Wyville, and by being in Wyville, we could actually help them understand and cope with the real world. And so there have been a number of academic studies, sort of independent of us. There are several academics that have been studying Wyville for years. They've written books on Wyville, actually, but we don't have... We help them with their studies, but this is independent academic research. And one of the things they've looked at academically and specifically is, you know, how the face parts that are made reflect what's going on in the real world. And that's interesting, you know, sort of interesting question, how virtual world space for kids interacts with real world space and how one can be used to understand the other and the other can be used to understand the first. So that's one of the research questions that we were interested in. And, uh, like I said, we've done some work on that, and then a lot of academics have worked on that as well.
0: I'm curious. I was looking in Wyville. I really wanted to see NASA, but I didn't see it. Where am I going to find them, and what did they contribute to Wyville?
1: So the Wyville Aeronautics and Space Administration, or WASA, is in Wyville. And WASA, you can do a number of things. We actually have several. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory, we have a couple of projects for them one on ion engines, but WASA is sort of an interesting story because, and so we've interacted with NASA for a while, and periodically we get additional grants of support to do things with them. We're actually talking to them now about something with biotechnology, but anyway, so WASA was sort of interesting. We launched it, and we decided we wanted kids to understand something about you know, how you aim rockets from the Earth to intercept planets or the space station, etc. So we built a way that kids could actually design rockets and then do the pointing, the navigation piece, which means they have to play around with math and stuff like that, which they do without knowing that's what they're doing. But anyway, so we got a grant to do that from NASA and I decided it would be cool for Wyville to have a space station. So we launched the space station and then we the idea was first we we're going to train kids in Wyville so they could go to the space station and be in zero gravity, okay? So we built a zero gravity simulator in Wyville where they can go in and learn how to move in zero gravity. And of course, the reason we did that is cuz we wanted them to have some sort of experience with uh, Newtonian mechanics. So, you know, our motivation was to have them experience themselves, as little avatars bouncing around, how Newtonian force, you know, action-reaction, Newtonian mechanics. But they were doing it because they wanted to get certified to be able to go to the space station. So to build out the space station, we were waiting for a second grant from NASA. And while we were waiting we decided, well, in order to inhabit the space station, we're going to have to get oxygen up there. So we had a contest where we motivated kids to design rockets and figure out how to point them to get them to the space station, which all has to do with math. So well, They don't realize it exactly, but that's what it is. And so they started launching you know, rockets to put small canisters of oxygen on the space station we were delayed waiting for the next NASA grant to be able to send money to build out the space station so they could go there, okay? Well, it turns out that the NASA administrator changed, and they decided not to fund the second phase of the grant, and so now, or to delay the second funding of the grant. So now we had a problem, because we'd carefully calculated how much oxygen the kids should carry up there given how much time it would take for the grant to come in, okay? And, of course, the kids did it much faster than we thought they would, which is always the case. They really got into it, and they started sending rockets all the time and lots of oxygen going up to the space station. And the grant hadn't come in yet. So what do we do? So we decided to make an oxygen leak. So we announced in the Wyville Times Oh, no, the space station has an oxygen leak. And therefore, we're going to have to keep sending oxygen up so that there's enough oxygen because there's a leak. Well, three weeks later, NASA announced that the that the space station at the time had an oxygen leak in the real world. And so, all of a sudden, people were accusing us of knowing in advance about the oxygen leak on the space station. Anyway, the long story again. But I hope gives you the sense of the interactivity. A lot of ed tech and learning games are what I call storyboarded. They're like textbooks. And you figure out what you want the kids to know, and then you figure out what paths they should take through the game to get to what you want them to know. That is very different from what we do. We build an environment or a space, okay, where we know how to motivate kids, they're learning math in the process, but how the game actually plays out, what actually happens, depends on the kids and the community and how they react to it and what they do and what they invent and all of that. And the only way you can do that is if you actually have a simulation base, that is, you have models that you're simulating underneath the space, underneath the world, you're not simply having a storyboarded story where kids start the game here and they have to do this and they have to do that and they have to do that and then eventually you get there. It turns out that's sort of like traditional education mm-hmm. and lots of kids, you know, realize they're being led by the nose and don't have much to trust. But anyway, mm-hmm. so there you are. That's Lhasa. <laughs>
0: And that's when the kids shut off. I have watched your TEDx talk about textbook versus digital and that basically was the idea that we don't want to be spoon-fed, we want to interact. Before we leave WASA, did you get the funding ultimately? No. (laughs) Oh, so we've got that oxygen leak still.
1: Yeah, we've got the oxygen leak. So it's been leaking now for like 10 years.
0: Oh, goodness. What is almost eerie is the way that you foresaw a pandemic. And you had two pandemics, I believe, in Wyville. And I would love to have you tell me about what you're doing right now with the National Science Foundation.
1: Sure. So we decided in, what, 2003, really, we're sitting around thinking, what could we do that was interesting? We now have maybe a couple hundred thousand kids that had registered. So, you know, it was a real, viable community. What could we do that was interesting? And one of, Mark Dynan actually, one of our founders, a brilliant software guy, but also involved deeply in the pedagogy and the construction of the site and its design, said, you know, I think it would be interesting to give them a disease. And we thought, well, that's kind of cool. How would this community react? This is, what, 2004, right? How would this community react to a pandemic? So we're sitting around thinking to ourselves, what could we do that they would notice? Remember that our average user is 13, and 78% of them are female. And so I don't remember who suggested it, but somebody said, we should give them acne, pimples. And we should also make them sneeze, so that when they're typing to meet with someone else, and they sneeze, they have to start over again. So they'll notice that. That'll annoy them a lot. So typically in Wyville, we don't announce what we're going to do in advance. It just happens. Okay, when we set up our with support from Al Gore's foundation, we set up a whole climate change thing, and the way we announced its existence was we hit the island with a hurricane. Actually, we wanted to name the hurricane Al, Because it was the first one. And the foundation said, no way we want Al's name to be on a hurricane that hits a virtual world with millions of kids in it. No way. So we named it Alice instead. But anyway, so we just all of a sudden, one day, kids showed up with, you know, pockmarks with acne on their avatars. And they were sneezing. And we didn't tell them it was coming. And so then we watched, and then it turns out some of the academics who worked with us and are now working with us on this new grant said, this is really fascinating. Let's see how a community reacts to the introduction of a disease. They did not know how it worked, where it came from, whatever, and, you know, how does the community respond? So they did a whole study watching the kids respond, and it was fascinating, and my friends in the business who I told we were about to give them all a disease said that's crazy they'll all leave. But of course they didn't. They were interested in it. We had kids that decided they were going to get the disease from their friends just to be able to commiserate. We had other kids that said if you see somebody with a disease run and then one of the cool things that happened was that some of them started selling elixirs. So They started selling, they said, "If you send me three clams, I will send you something that if you drink it means that, you know, your disease will go away faster. And so one of the reporters for the Wyville Times, on her own, decided to set up an experiment. She got five of her friends to take the elixir, five of them not to take the elixir, and she compared the results and then published an article in the Weyville Times. Saying that she did this experiment, and it turns out the elixir doesn't make any difference. We didn't tell her to do this. We didn't tell people to make the elixirs. We didn't tell her to do the experiment. You know, we were very happy to see it published in the Wyville Times. This is something they did themselves. It was not part of the game that we designed. So then, a little while later, we set up the Centers for Disease Control in Wyville, where kids could go in and use uh, epidemiological modeling software to predict the time course and the magnitude of the pandemic in Wyville, given different parameters that they could play around with. And this goes back to the idea that, you know, we're really interested in understanding how simulation technology can be used to educate people in this case, We're interested in showing them what simulation technology is. And by the way, right now in the world, we have another grant that we're submitting. I think one of the major things that the public needs to understand is what a model is and what a model isn't, because models are increasingly going to be important for policy and for making decisions. Anyway, so we started doing that years ago. And then in 2009, I gave a talk at the Centers for Disease Control, the real one, I told them about the Y-POX as it's called, and someone came up and said, we can fix that. We'll give you some money to vaccinate children in Weibel virtually. So we set up a vaccination station, and by the way, that induced all the conversations about vaccinations that we have in the real world. You know, because we don't control what kids think. Our view is that, you know, they should be able to say what they want and they should engage in discussion and there are lots of ways and why they'll participate in discussion on these things. So we had people saying don't vaccinate yourself because of this and we had other people saying no, there's no evidence for that. And we had everything that you had in the real world and this debate was there. And that's what we care about. We weren't insisting anybody get vaccinated. We didn't march in and say, no, the anti-vaxxers are biologically not correct. We didn't spin in any way. We let the community have the discussion. And we set up the mechanisms and the opportunities for them to do that. We brought in experts to talk about vaccinations from the CDC and others. But we do not and never do enforce our opinions on anybody else. We're more interested in the dialogue, and we do make sure we have a very sophisticated system for community management, by the way, is critically important. It models teachers, the techniques they use to do very good classroom management. So we do manage the community, but we don't manage them for content, we don't manage them for opinions. We manage the community to make sure that the kind of conversations that the community has are respectful, you know, are the kind you would want to have. So anyway, but then Ebola came along. So that was in 2014. And NSF said, you know, we wrote a grant that said we would like to use Wyville to have kids understand an Ebola-like disease. The Ypox pox was not a coronavirus. It was a different kind of virus. So we built We changed the dynamics of the disease in Wyville so it was more Ebola-like. But For example, you could get it without being symptomatic. You could give it without getting symptomatic. There was no vaccine. okay? And so we also decided to add an economic piece. So as I told you, kids run companies, they run face parts, and they get a salary every time they come into Wyville, depending on how many of the activities they've done. But we decided when they were sick, they should not be able to run their companies or have their salaries. And this was five years ago. So one of the things we were interested in having them understand and understanding ourselves was how a population would react if there were severe economic consequences to a pandemic. We also dealt with disparity issues. So we made available ourselves a hazmat suit. There were no vaccines, so the hazmat suit that you could buy and wear that would protect you from what was called the dragon swooping cost. But it cost a lot of money, a lot of clams. You can't buy clams for real dollars. They're just within the virtual world itself. So that started a whole conversation about whether it was fair to have some people that have access to the hazmat suits and others because they don't have the money to not have hazmat access. And so a bunch of Wyvillians got together who were wealthy, decided to put together a fund to help pay for the Wyvillians that did not have the money to buy asthma. Furthermore, they decided they needed a vaccine. So they put together a fund to actually pay for the development of a vaccine against the dragon souping clock. Through so another thing that we built which is called the BioPlex, supported by the Texas Workforce Commission that wanted kids to know something about biomedical research and education and entrepreneurship as possible futures for their own careers. So we built the bioflex around viruses. So kids could go in and understand what a virus was, understand how they mutate and understand the complexities of building viruses against them. So the community as a whole decided to fund research in the BioPlex to specifically get a vaccine against this new dragon swooping cough. Okay? So, and then now, as you know, two weeks ago, the National Science Foundation just gave us another grant to update all of this and to make it more relevant to COVID-19. And importantly, to actually build tools so that teachers can use this for their students so that students can actually understand more about what is now turning their world upside down and the last thing I'll say about well I won't be necessary, you ask me another question I'll go on for another 20 minutes but the last thing to say that's interesting I think about the WIPOC and this whole thing is that when certain members of the federal government announced loudly that nobody knew that something like this was possible. If you look on Twitter, you will see a bunch of kids, not kids anymore, who tweeted, wait a minute, I was doing this 15 years ago at Wyville. How come they didn't know when we were actually actively involved in this like 15 years ago? Clearly somebody knew,
0: right? Right. And clearly it predicted almost eerily the way that things are going to happen. I'd wondered how you were going to be supporting teachers more in the fall. And that's one answer. What are some of the other resources that will be available for teachers more in Wyville in the fall than they ever have been before due to the pandemic?
1: So again, let me, I'm a professor, so I'm always going to back up before I go forward. I'm sorry.
0: That's fine. So
1: in 1983, When I kind of knew that this kind of technology was going to eventually have a significant impact on the human race, and I don't think of anything that are more important in terms of affecting the human race than education. So when we started playing with this stuff in 1983-84, I knew the schools were not ready course, you know, most people didn't even have email in 1983 and 84, let alone an internet connection. I did, but, you know, I was a rare. I, even, I was rare even at Caltech in terms of how much I was on the internet connected. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So I knew it would take a little while, okay? So what we set out to do was to really kind of do the research. And when we, I didn't, you know, 16, 17 years, we worked with teachers in classrooms. You know, I had one of my friends at Apple, a guy named Alan Kay, gave us a bunch of computers, it was one of the original Apple people, that we could play around with schools, and we did. But I knew perfectly well it would be a while before schools in general were able to deal with this kind of technology, or knew that they should. So I didn't know it was going to be 35 years. Okay, didn't know that. But in 1999, still, it was pretty clear that this approach to learn... Most people at that time were thinking about putting textbooks online, which is about the dumbest thing I can think to do, or making... They're still doing it, still making these games that are basically textbooks, except in the form of a game, okay, which completely isn't the right pedagogy for this. So in 1999, we launched. We knew it was too early for the school, so we decided to build an informal education site. So Wyville was you know, designed for anybody that wanted to go there, kids, teachers, and we've had thousands of teachers sign up, millions of children, parents, adults, grandparents, whomever. But we didn't specifically start working on tools to support teacher use, and we didn't specifically start working on ways to connect what we're doing to curriculum in particular and specific curriculum because it was too early. Okay, we knew that. And because we didn't know how to do it. We were still doing R&D. We were still trying to figure it out. Well, you know, five years ago, we decided maybe it's time to take on math education. Given what we know, and given how we know how we can engage kids, and given how we know how we can get kids engaged in math without, you know, the usual phobias, et cetera. So we started a project called Play Math which is now basically ready to be used in school. Okay, It will be ready. By the fall, it will be ready to be used in school. But, and to do that, we started building teacher support tools, which are quite different from, you know, the usual ones you see actually in their design. But, you know, so, so they're there. A big piece of this new NSF grant is to develop tools specifically to help teachers link It's COVID stuff in Wyville. And we are now, you know, COVID accelerated all of this. Okay, it probably would have been, it would have taken another who knows how many years before, you know, every teacher in the United States and many of them on the planet are now forced to do things online. That might have taken another 35 years, I don't know. But now we have to do it. So for us, and, you know, the COVID-19 is a terrible thing. I wish it hadn't happened. We're not, I'm not surprised it happened. You know, we kind of predicted it would happen. Others did too. But the silver lining is that I think that the fact that all these kids are online now is really going to force the educational system to really consider how... To use this technology not to replace schools, not to replace teachers, but to make what they do more effective, engage more kids, etc. Now, that said, and I just was on a panel in London this morning, just a few hours ago, with a whole bunch of venture capitalists. They keep inviting me back, I don't know why, because I keep telling them stuff that I think would make them angry, but one of the things I said to them is, look, billions of dollars have been spent on educational technology to this point, a lot of them in companies you know, with D.C. support. Most of that stuff is worthless, because it's set up not in relationship to real teachers, it's set up not in relationship to real curriculum, it's set up not in relationship to real students and real schools it's almost a lot of it set up as if, here, we can do this instead of that. I think if there's one thing that COVID-19 should have taught us all, I've got a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, right? So, And and lots of other, especially people with kids, okay? I hope that there's a renewed appreciation for teachers and the important role that teachers play. And if, if you don't know about that, you've never taught in a school, you've never interacted, in my case, for 16 years with elementary school teachers and poor school systems in California, the chances you're going to make anything educational online it's going to be successful for one thing, from a business point of view, but effective is very low to zero. So, with this experience, with this background, we are now not pivoting, we're... Because of COVID-19, it's jumped everything, I think. And so now we see a huge opportunity to link teachers and education to the stuff we've been developing for a long time, where a bunch of their kids already are. So for us, it's kind of, it's challenging, of course, but it's also a, it's a spectacular opportunity for us to actually test what we think we know.
0: How can teachers sign their classes or homeschooling parents, for that matter, sign their children up for Wyville?
1: Well, the Wyville actually, actually, because teachers get, you know, it's, it's again, community management is a huge piece of this. You know, there are various virtual worlds like Second Life and some of the Unity worlds now where they just sort of, they figure if you build it, you know, if you make it, they will come and build cool stuff. That turns out not to be true. If you make a platform they'll come and build all the stuff they know. Not necessarily the stuff that makes sense given the technology that they're talking about and the first thing. The second thing is community management is huge. You know, community management is classroom management for a teacher. And any teacher will tell you, if you don't understand how to manage the learning in your class and the kids in your class, okay, then nothing else happens. So a huge part of what we invented and we've patented, actually, in some cases, it really has to do with community management. So I say that because teachers in Wyville actually register as teachers. And we check to make sure they are teachers. Because every Wyvillian would love to have the privileges that a teacher has. So on the front page of the white go to Yville.net okay on the bottom of the front page it says if you're a teacher click here, you can register and then you can register your class in Wyville, and then you have a bunch of tools which will be continuously developed and improved over the next several months. I think August September is going to be a very important date for education in the world historically I think actually. but anyway, you can register your kids, give them an account, and then you have certain controls. So, for example, one thing we... I mean, is an open space used by kids and adults and everyone else all over the world. One of the things that teachers worry about, and they should worry about, is, you know, knowing what their kids are sort of exposed to. And Wyville has a very sophisticated system for managing behavior. You know, much more sophisticated, I think, than almost any other site on the Internet, actually. But... One of the things a teacher can do is specify, you know, I only want my kids to interact with my kids in y So I know that they're not interacting with the population as a whole. We will shortly have the option that teachers can say, okay, I want all the kids that are in my school to interact, or I would love to have my kids interact with the teacher in Japan. So we have ways that a teacher can manage, you know, their the kids' use of Wyville. But the first step is to register, and then we check, make sure that the teacher is a teacher. And then we also have a number of online, you know, information about how to use Wyville. And one of the things we will start doing soon is actually having town hall meetings in Wyville with teachers. We're gonna have special Zoom-based training for teachers that are interested in using Wyville so that we can sort of help them learn how to use it. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention is kind of important. Weivill is free. It's free to use. Okay. And there's no advertising. We don't sell data. You know, we're more COPA than COPA in terms of security and privacy. So, you know, that's important. Somewhere down the line with the PlayMath projects, for example, you know, we may end up actually looking for subscriptions from schools, which will allow us to do much more support and development, but Wyville for 21 years has been completely
0: free. What a great resource. What if you have a homeschooling parent? You're going to check that the teacher is a teacher, but what if the parent's homeschooling they're not technically speaking a teacher?
1: We communicate with them by email and make sure that it sounds like they're actually
0: a homeschool parent.
1: By the way, we do not yet, but we will. So you're right homeschooling is a different thing. We've actually interacted with a number of different homeschool associations. I think everyone's a homeschool teacher now, parent now, basically. But I think that, you know, we have talked about building specific support for parents that are homeschooling. And especially because Wyville has such a strong STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics base, and a lot of homeschool parents are left you know, confident in dealing with those subjects. So I think that we've always thought there was a big opportunity. By the way, and this is another one, I'm writing a book on this, which is part of the reason why I go on chapter by chapter for writing a book on the history of Wyville and how we got to where we are. But another thing to say that's important is that, you know, Wyville is a bootstrap operation. We've never taken venture capital money. We've You know, we've wanted to keep in control of it because we're really doing R&D, and we were, you know, we're in it for the long haul. So that means that we've sort of been cash-strapped for many, many years. However, that's about to change, I think. And at that point, we'll be able to dump a lot more resources into, especially support for teachers, the NSF grant helps, but also I think the homeschool
0: community as well. That is excellent. And when can we expect to see your book?
1: Oh, don't ask my wife. (laughs) <laughs> I've been working on it for five years but I do a lot of other things too. I mean I'm the executive director of the Pacific Division of the American Association of National Science I'm a professor, I teach, I do a lot of other things.
0: Jim has taught college level neuroscience and computational biology at a number of educational institutions. Currently he's affiliate professor of biology at Southern Oregon University.
1: But I think now, you know, I'm expecting to have the draft on, basically, and to the editors by the end of the summer, because I think it's time now. You know, it's another timing thing, right? So I could have written this book 10 years ago, but I think now, you know, is sort of the right time, because, and here's the big because, you know, as I said, a lot of the money that's been invested in EdTech, I think, has kind of been headed in the wrong direction for a long time. I think now with teachers, the fall is not going to be normal, Okay. Yeah, kids make in the United States. Kids may go to school like they are now in Germany. I think one day a week, but they're going to be home three or four days a week. So the hybrid school online thing is not going to go away anytime soon because this virus is not going to go away anytime soon. And you know, some part of society might decide, "Who cares if people get sick? I need to make money." But I don't think the schools are going to decide that. So. I mean, the schools are going to make the decision primarily based on what's good for students, as they always do, or as they always try to do. So I think that there's a lot, there are billions and billions of dollars now being put into online education. One reason I want to write the book is so that that money is actually spent in a way that's smart, rather than in the way it's been spent so far, which I think is kind of Dumb, (laughs) frankly.
0: (laughs) Jim, what do you consider one of the most important things that you yourself, as an education professional, have learned from Wyville?
1: I wouldn't say learn. I'd say reinforced. So, you know, I have... The projects that I ran out of Caltech assumed that every second grader could be a scientist. Or actually, what they really you know, assumed is that every second grader is a scientist. That every pre-K, you know, every three-year-old is a scientist. They do experiments all the time. They stick stuff in their mouth. There are various reasons for that, but part of it's experimentation. And so I have always made the assumption that everybody is capable of understanding math, Everybody at some level that's functional, everyone is capable of understanding science, and more importantly, every human being is capable of interacting with and participating in those things. But it was kind of an assumption, all right? Now, you know, with a site that's STEM based, but the majority of users are young girls, for example. And then, but still, you know, millions of other non girls as well. I think that what was sort of an assumption going in, Wyville has sort of demonstrated that under the right circumstances, you know, with the right kind of design, that science is not just the purview of, you know, a very small subset of the public. It's not fundamentally and should not be an elitist kind of thing. And so I thought that going in, but it was sort of a hypothesis. And, you know, we saw evidence of that when we worked in these 12 school districts in California, for sure. But, you know, now on a very grand scale, we've been able to watch and see how this works. So that's the uh, that I suspected that to begin with. Right? Everyone has the same brain, basically. Small changes here and there, but we all basically have the same brain. So I didn't see why that brain couldn't be used in similar ways by everybody. And so, but it turns out that it looks like that was right. The other thing I learned (laughs) is it takes much longer for anything to change than you thought. When we started in 1984-85, I thought we really need to get moving quickly because someone else is going to come over and do this, and they're going to have a lot of money, and they're going to have a lot of position in the market, you know, one of the textbook companies, blah, 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 and we're going to get swamped, and we're not going to have the opportunity to really play with this. And so I thought that was going to happen, and it turns out it just takes longer to time for for really... It always takes a long time for people to understand how to use new technology, always. That was true for the printing press. You know, metal cans were invented, you know, 10 years before can openers. I mean, it just kind of goes on and on and on. So I thought we'd have a lot of competition and uh, we should just really get going. Otherwise, we would lose the opportunity. And it turns out that that wasn't true.
0: And finally, as we wrap up here, if people could only get one thing from you as an innovator, as a dad, as a neurobiologist about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you?
1: It's worth the effort.
0: Jim, thank you for your time today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: You and I have been listening to Dr. James Bauer, CEO and Chairman of the Board of Median Incorporated the Pasadena-based educational software company which originated and manages Yville, the largest and the oldest virtual world for kids on the Internet. And Yville is always updating its content. There's always going to be something new. As Jim mentioned, new math programming is forthcoming for the fall semester. If you're a teacher or homeschooling parent who'd like to know more, check out Yville on Yville.net. That's Yville.net. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at 2mavericks.com. That's 2 T W O Mavericks. M A V E R I X. 2mavericks.com. And you can contact us at 2mavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.